So the other night, although it's, it seems longer ago than just last night, but la- it was only last night, we were saying how this retreat represents the coming together of, of two very ancient traditions, that of uh, the Buddhist teachings and that of the uh, yogic tradition, and how in the distant mists of, of ancient history, they come most likely out of the same roots. So tonight I want to uh, share with you one way in which they are rooted, they have the same roots. And this is the teaching on the path of practice. Tonight I want to talk about some of the essential ingredients of any authentic spiritual path. In the Buddhist tradition, these are no, this is known as the Eightfold Path. And uh, these are practices and understandings which lead to awakening. In the Pali language, the, the Eightfold Path is grouped into three, uh, what are called three baskets or three sections. The teachings on sila or morality the teachings on meditation or samadhi, and the teachings on wisdom or panya. In the yogic traditions, this is called the teachings of the yamas and niyamas, the teachings on samadhi, and the teachings on prajna or wisdom. Just a difference in language, but they're the same understanding that these three are essential ingredients of a spiritual path. It's not enough just to do asana practice. It's not enough just to sit down and and uh, learn how to be with your breath. That there's actually uh, 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 these these practices are embedded in a very rich tradition of of amazing teachings, teachings that are meant to liberate us, meant to free us from the ways that we are confused, are not happy, the ways that we are caught in a sense of uh, not being free. So there's a, there's a richness in, in these teachings. So as we did last night by taking the precepts, this is, this is the beginning of the practice of, of morality, of sila, S-I-L-A. It is the ethical foundation represented on the Eightfold Path by wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. In retreat, the, that is expressed by living with these precepts that we took of not killing, not stealing, not... Uh, being celibate, not intoxicating the mind, keeping silence. This is all in the, in the, in the uh, effort, in the uh, service of developing this quality of an ethical foundation for our lives. Samadhi is the training of the mind and heart to be focused and steady in the present. It is represented on the Eightfold Path by wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. How to be present. How to 
to live from present awareness. Panya or prajna is the quality of insight or wisdom represented on the Eightfold Path by wise understanding and wise intention. So this is our subject matter for tonight and we'll just be scratching the surface because as you can see this is a big subject. But first I'd like to start with a story. And it is a story about uh, some time at least 10 years ago, maybe longer, when I was, it was the summertime, very much like this weather, and I was on a road trip in New Mexico, in northern New Mexico, with a friend, and it was a very carefree road trip. We were just going from place to place rather spontaneously, and beautiful weather. We just would stop and go swimming in a river, have a picnic here and there, and hiking in canyons. It was very carefree, extremely lovely time we were having. And then we we were driving, so we needed some gas at a certain point. We stopped at a gas station. And uh, not one of those modern gas stations, a little bit old-timey gas station where you had to go into the, into the station and pay, you know, with money at the counter and, um, and people to talk to and all that. So on the counter, uh, while my friend was paying for the gas, I saw this little basket that said fortunes. I thought, oh, that's fun. So I reached in the basket and I pulled out a fortune. And here's what it said. A major life crisis awaits you. (laughs) Don't imagine you can't lose all your money. You can. Well, that was like, oh my God, this is more like some kind of curse, you know. I was just like shocked. It sort of uh, uh, created a pall over the carefree, happy nature of this trip. It was sobering. And of course, being a Dharma person, it caused me to reflect on the fact that, yes, I see, okay, as happy as this day is, it's kind of a sober reminder that, you know, at some point in life, there'll be some big waves that will crash down and things will change. There will be some kind of loss. There will be some kind of crisis. It's part of the way it is. This is true for every life not to uh, go into fear and panic, but just to see it as, as some kind of truth, as some kind of inevitable truth. But being very human, of course, when we are reflecting that way and we're feeling the fragility of our uh, situation in life, we look for security, do we not? We look for some way to protect ourselves. We look for some way to give ourselves a sense of a stable foundation, a, a sense of being on solid ground. So the Buddha, in the same way that uh, we did, realize we do realize that this search for security is a major feature of human life. And so when people would ask him where is real, where is true protection to be found, he gave teachings on 
these qualities of sila, samadhi, and panya, saying that these are the true protection that we need as we go through life. He gave us a teaching called the Mangala Sutta, which I brought with me here tonight to share with you. And Mangala is the Pali word for a, a protective amulet, you know, like like people wear little protection things. We have protection cords in the Buddhist tradition. People wear little charms or little little amulets, you know, to protect protect us. And uh, so that was the uh, way in which he was commenting that this is the real protection is in these qualities of mind and heart. And... Um, He said about these three qualities of sila, samadhi, and panya. He said, if you develop these, they who live by following this path will know peace wherever they go, and every place for them will be safe. These are the highest blessings. So that's a different idea about protection than perhaps we we think in our very materialistic world, we look more for outer symbols of protection, you know, this gated communities or cars with, secu- you know, special security features. Or I was staying in a house earlier this summer here in Marin where the woman had all kinds of, you know, security alarms and cameras and I'm not used to that, so it was kind of, it made me actually more afraid. <laughs> oh, what do we do? <laughs> well, I guess I need this. I, did, I wasn't aware of needing this, but it's a funny thing. Um, yeah, so we look for the outer symbols to protect us. But the Buddha is saying, no, it's what's inside that will be the true protection in the long run. He said, living a life with an ethical foundation of non-harming is a blessing and a protection. Knowing how to cultivate calmness of being and happiness of mind through mindful awareness practices is a blessing and protection. Seeing deeply into the truth of our present experience is a great blessing and protection. In short, this development of what is known as the Eightfold Path. So a visual image of these three qualities that I like to uh, contemplate is the image of a tree that training our mind and heart in sila, samadhi, and panya is like growing a firmly rooted tree. A tree has roots, a supporting trunk, and a crown of branches and leaves. A tree is not a tree without all these three parts. In the same way, our spiritual practice is not complete without all three aspects. Sila is like the roots, samadhi is like the trunk, and panya is like the crown of the tree. All three 
aspects need to be present for our practice to be complete. The other thing that is really key is that uh, in this way of understanding how these three qualities work together, samadhi by itself would be considered incomplete. You might have a lot of awareness in the present or concentration in the present, but without morality, it 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 it's not uh, perhaps moving in the right direction. For example, a thief could have a lot of uh, you know awareness of the and collectedness of mind. Or like, you know, I think of Madoff. He he had some kind of amazing, you know, ability to keep track of things. But the motivation was completely, you know, not right. The motivation was was not ethical. In the same way that uh, being a very good person, leading a very ethical life, being very kind and caring is a wonderful thing, but in itself it is not liberating, that ethics alone will not free us. And in the same way, panya, inside itself, is not enough. There is tons of wisdom, you could say, in the world. All we have to do is type in the word wisdom in Google, and you'll be, you know, flooded with all kinds of good ideas about how to be wise. I mean, they'll probably be, I haven't Googled it, now I'm going to want to, I'll let you know, but probably like 300 million, you know, ways you can be wise. But would it do us any good? It wouldn't do us any good because it's just information. It's not integrated. It's not part of our living understanding. It would just be conceptual, we could say. So for a spiritual practice to be complete, all three are needed, and they support each other and and work together. So when we train in these precepts in the ethical foundation, we are encouraging wholesome qualities of mind and heart to emerge, to show themselves qualities of patience or kindness or tolerance or forgiveness or um, compassion, love, caring. They just naturally begin to emerge. They are born from a mind that is not captured by greed, by confusion, by aversion. There is a Jataka tale that are kind of like... um, Uh, stories about the Buddha in past lives that are like little, uh, like Aesop's fables or something like that, where you get a lesson from each tale. So there's one story, supposedly of the Buddha in a past life, where um, a king was looking for an heir to his kingdom because he didn't have any uh, sons. So he put out a word in the kingdom that he was looking for an heir that would be able to do do one specific task. And that task was to steal something without anybody else knowing about it, without anybody knowing about it. So he got 
the announcement went out and he began to get, you know, people coming to him and saying, I stole this amazing chariot and I did it in the dark of night and nobody knows about it. And the king would listen and then he would say, sorry, no, forget it. And he had a number of these kinds of people coming and saying things like that. And he'd always say, no, sorry, forget it. One day, a young man came who said, and the king said, well, so what did you steal? And he said, well, actually, he said, I don't think it's possible to steal anything without anyone knowing it because I would know it. And the king said, ah, you are my heir. He had been looking for somebody who had that ethical foundation. However, as I said before, sila by itself does not lead to necessarily to awakening or the end of suffering. Thai forest teacher Buddha Dasa said, morality by by itself stops well short of the elimination of craving, aversion, and delusion. Therefore, it cannot do away with suffering. However, it is excellent preparation for the development of our meditative abilities, our, our abilities to be mindful, to be concentrated, to be, collect our attention in the present. Why is that? Because when we come to being present with ourselves, and you have seen this today, it's not easy, is it, to keep coming back to being present with yourself? Anybody here find that a piece of cake? No, it's hard. It goes against our grain of our habits. But as we develop that, it is easier if we don't come back to ourselves and feel regret, remorse, guilt. Oh, why did I do this? I'm such a bad person. You know, that just makes it even harder. So if we live with an ethical foundation, we are at least coming back to being with ourselves in a way that feels a lot better, that is perhaps easier to be with. Some Asian teachers have said about us as meditators that, you know, when, when, we, when these practices first came to this country, we weren't, that morality wasn't what we were after. You know, it was like, oh yeah, we heard that in church, but tell us about awakening, you know, tell us about enlightenment, tell us about the bliss of, of awakening. That's what we wanted to know. We kind of ignored the, the ethical piece. And so some Asian teachers said, you know, you're a little bit like people in a boat uh, that is tied to the dock and you're trying to make the boat go, you know. Without the ethical foundation, your practice just won't go anywhere. So samadhi, the quality of collectedness of mind, of calmness and uh, presence. We have this wonderful sign as you come in on the road down here. You see that sign as you're coming into Spirit Rock, yield to the present. Well, that's what you've been doing all day, isn't it? Hopefully, maybe, I mean, not all day, but that's been the direction. 
you know, coming and yielding to present awareness. What is here? Am I aware? What am I aware of? That is uh, a uh, movement that requires a certain letting go, a certain letting go of other mind habits that you have of wanting, of obsessing, of, of longing, of being upset or whatever it is. So there's this, this encouragement in the practice to incline our mind to yield to the present over and over and over. At first it may seem, why am I doing this? You know, what's the point? Over time we begin to discover that it has benefits. It has actual benefits to keep returning to the present. We discover a treasure house that we had perhaps overlooked. Leonard Jacobson, a spiritual teacher, wrote this. He said, you spend very little time in the present moment. Reality exists only in the present moment. Therefore, you spend very little time in reality. And we begin to wake up to that reality the more we yield to the present over and over again. So this practice of yielding, of returning, of uh, waking up in the present brings a certain kind of uh, stillness and steadiness of mind, calmness of being, even at times feelings of great contentment, perhaps bliss, but does not by itself lead to wisdom. This quality is not an end in itself. This is a subtle point because often people associate the bliss of samadhi, of concentration, with the attainment of liberation or nirvana. It can be very blissful. But it is only because there is a temporary stilling of difficult states of mind. Everything else sort of goes away temporarily only to return once we leave that state. But it is easy to get attached to that quality of, of just well-being and, and happiness in the moment. You will touch that many, many times in your practice. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's something to understand that as good as it is, it is only temporary. So these qualities of sila and samadhi also need wisdom. The third great quality spoken about as part of the path of practice. Sila and samadhi are the roots and the trunk of the tree and wisdom is the, the, the branches and the leaves, the flowering of the tree, we could say. On the Eightfold Path, wisdom is represented by wise view and wise intention. So what is wisdom? From the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, what is wisdom? If we didn't Google it, 
and find out these 300 million bits of information, what, how else could we approach the subject of understanding what wisdom is? So I'd like to read you a little story that I think is illustrates an approach to understanding wisdom. This is a story from Gil Fransdale's book called A Monastery Within. These are little imaginary uh, tales about the practice. And they all take place in a monastery where there's a, uh, the abbess of the monastery is a woman and she, she uh, has many visitors. So here's a day when she is uh, a visiting, she's meeting with a visiting philosophy professor. And after lunch, they went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, we don't rely on any philosophy here at the monastery. But, continued the professor, everyone has a philosophy with which they make sense of their life and their purpose. Well, it is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, Well, as we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we had become from our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying from hunger, the need to feed the child is obvious to the parent. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery, the monks and nuns are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, Ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. I like that story a lot. This is our practice. Knowing that this awareness that we are cultivating, that we are calling forth, that we are all, we all have innately within us, when we are calling forth that awareness, we are calling forth something that can guide us in our lives, that we can rely on to know when to sit down in the shade or all the other many decisions we have to make in our lives. 
we understand what is appropriate in the different circumstances of our lives. So in a way, we are learning from what we become aware of. We could say it's a process of learning as we become more aware of all that is occurring inside of our minds, our hearts, our bodies. There's a lot, isn't there? There's a lot to notice. But the more that we notice, the more aware we are without uh, judging ourselves or resisting what we see or getting lost in it, the more we are aware, the more this quality of wakefulness begins to wake up inside. Another story. So a student goes to a teacher and says, what is the secret of life? The teacher says, good judgment. The student thinks and says, oh, well, how do I get good judgment? The teacher says, experience. And the student says, well, how do I get experience? The teacher says, bad judgment. (laughs) This is called learning. This is trial and error learning. We learn based on our capacity to be aware of what's going on and learn from it. So in this practice, we, we, uh, we don't condemn mistakes. We don't call ourselves failures for making a mistake. We say instead, what a great opportunity. In fact, all of Spirit Rock, in the past, I don't know, several years, we have become what we call, what we we call, what we're doing here, the staff, the teachers, the cooks, the managers. We have called ourselves a learning community. That's what we do at Spirit Rock. You know, it may not look like that to you, but we are all committed to being together in a way that we're all learning something together. And of course, in that process, we make a lot of mistakes, but we hopefully learn from them. So in our practice, this learning, uh, in this learning, mindful awareness and concentration, of course, play an important role. The Buddha distinguished two different kinds of ways that we can pay attention to our experience. One way he called wise attention, and the other way he called unwise attention. So what did he mean by that? And this is so radically different from our usual way that it takes you know, some reflection perhaps to get it. But he said unwise attention to our experience is our tendency to think about things. Our tendency to think and think and think. Anybody notice any thinking going on here today? Of course, the mind loves to think. It's part of its nature is to think. And thinking is not a bad thing. But when it comes to learning from our experience, it can only go so far thinking about it, thinking about it. It seems like we don't just think it once. 
We have a problem we're trying to solve. Do we just think it through once? No, we think it through, you know, 75 times and we still don't have an answer. So the Buddha called thinking about things in this way unwise attention, that a more effective strategy is what he called wise attention, which is being aware of what is happening, of noticing our present experience and learning from that, learning how to collect ourselves enough, how to calm down enough so that we can be present with our experience and learn from it. Again, the Thai forest teacher Buddha Dasa said, it is just when the mind is quiet and cool in a state of well-being, undisturbed, collected and fresh, that some solution to a, pers- to a persistent problem is arrived at. That is one of the paradoxes of practice, something that we're struggling with. It doesn't do so much good to th- try to think it, or think it through all the time, but it might do a lot of good to put it aside and calm the mind, develop that quality of openness, of just being present, available to be uh, taught. And then something sometimes arrives, very unexpected, out of the blue. So as you have seen today, calming and settling the mind in the present requires you to let go of stuff. And in this practice, we talk a lot about renunciation or letting go. For example, you coming on this retreat required you to let go of a lot. You had to create the time and space to come here. You had to let go of your usual habits and routines, your... your uh, friends, your families, your children, your parents, whatever it is that you left behind, it was a process of letting go. And uh, it's interesting to reflect on that. What did I let go of? I mean, I'm sure you had many other possibilities in your life for things you could have been doing, you know, but you chose instead to let those go to come here on retreat. So hopefully the benefits of being here will outweigh any sense of deprivation you may now be feeling in this process. And I have confidence that you will, because this, is, this seems to be the nature of retreats. And when we let go, we, we receive unex, unexpected benefits. We can't imagine what they're going to be at the beginning of the retreat. It's always a surprise to people what they learn on a retreat or what comes to them as a result of being on retreat. But they are you almost, you know, across the board, felt as benefits. And so people come back. You know, a lot of people come here every year instead of going on vacation. Why? Because the benefit is so great. And then, of course, there's a letting go that happens every time you come back to your present experience. Every time you 
bring awareness into your present experience, there's a little bit of letting go. Because when you, when you are letting go of your obsession, for example, say you're obsessed with thinking about something, but every time you ask yourself, am I aware? And what am I aware of? And you see that you're aware of this obsession. You are creating a loosening of your identification with that obsession, a loosening of your engagement with that obsession. You are bringing in more a sense of presence and embodiment, being here rather than lost in thought. So you might consider that as another part of letting go. When you are resting in present awareness, what good are your opinions? When you're resting in present awareness, what good is your self-image of yourself? Or your, your, uh, what you want to happen versus what is here? In every moment of awareness, of mindful attention to what is, there is, there is some letting go. There is letting go. Then we can begin to see something of a deeper nature emerge. We call it the truth. The truth of our experience begins to emerge out of this willingness to begin to let go. This is a poem called Renunciation by Jennifer Wellwood. I won't read all of it, but I'll read a part of it because it evokes some of what I'm trying to say. She says, There will always be voices that promise you greatness and glory. They call out from the worldly marketplace. They call out from the spiritual marketplace. They call out from the bigger, better, more marketplace. We all know these marketplaces, right? Do not buy their false promises or purchase their ephemeral wares. What fulfills for a moment is not worth the price of your soul. Want only what is true. Want only what is true. That's not something we hear uh, on the media. (laughs) Want what is true. But it is a very good instruction because it, it can guide us in this practice because this practice thrives on being in touch with the truth of things, with what is real, what is true in our experience. Do we want that? That's a great question. Do we want what is true? Maybe we don't. Maybe we'd rather have some fantasies or illusions or whatever. Are we interested in the truth? Someone once asked Albert Einstein uh, about his intellect, saying, wow, you must be, you know, your intellect is amazing that you discovered these laws of the universe and all that. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I don't, I don't think of myself as being especially smart at all. He said, but I do think that maybe I'm a little bit more curious than most people. And curiosity and wanting to know the truth will take you a very long way 
in this inner exploration, to be curious. Now, it is certainly uh, true that in our practice of letting go over and over, coming into the present experience, our bodies help us very much. And I'm sure you have found that today. Doing the asana practice, hasn't that helped you tremendously be more present? And in any moment of your coming back into the present, guess who's here to meet you? Your body. The body is always present. Have you noticed? The body's always here. So it's a wonderful way to return and be reminded over and over again that here we are. Seeing, hearing, sensing, tasting, smelling. It's all right here. Just can I be aware? Am I aware? How easy that is. If I say to you right now, be aware of your feet. If I say to you right now, be aware of the feeling of the air on your skin. If I say to you right now, be aware of any sounds, the sound of my voice or anything else. If I say to you right now, be aware of your entire body sitting here. Now, is any of that difficult? No. It's right here, isn't it? This felt sense of being here is right here. How wonderful. So this is, uh, if I had said to you, okay, now I want you to um, think about your feet. Or think about the air on your skin. Or think about the sound of my voice or any sounds. Think about being here. Isn't that a totally different experience? Are you with me? Nod your head so I know at least you're awake. Um, So do you see the difference? This is a, a very small little example of the difference between wise and unwise attention. Unwise attention, thinking about our experience, doesn't really go go too far, does it? But being aware of what's right here, that's what the Buddha was talking about. This wise attention that can be present and experience life directly, immediately. So these three qualities of sila, samadhi, and panya as the Eightfold Path are an expression of what it means to live an awakened life, to live with an ethical foundation, to live with understanding how to utilize mindfulness and concentration, to live with wise understanding, wise intention, to bring that quality of wisdom into one's actions, into one's ways of seeing and being in the world. This is called living an awakened life. So it's both a description 
and and a proscription, a prescription for how to practice. Because these, each of these things is very, it's not philosophical, it's not theoretical, it's very practical. You can put it into practice in any moment of your experience. So this is for your reflection tonight, to know that we are practicing within this context. This, this is the context of the retreat and of, of the... Uh, instructions that we will be giving, uh, the context of doing asana practice together, to cultivate this ability for embodied presence. So these are, these are for your reflection. Okay, then let's sit together just briefly before we end. Thank you for your kind attention. We now have about 45 minutes for some walking in the lovely cool evening air, getting cooler by the hour. And um, we'll sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.